0: This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Must for all pensioners. Hello, and welcome to Suite 212. Putting the arts in their social, cultural, Political and historical contexts here on London's best and brightest radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Juliette Jakes, and I'd like to remind listeners that our annual fundraiser for Resonance 104.4 FM starts on the 1st of February and runs until the 10th. This programme is coming to you live and for free, so if you like what you hear on Suite 212 or on Resonance more generally, please do support us by setting up a regular donation. That's the best way to help us make long-term plans to maintain our community radio facilities and to support our many broadcasters. So please do visit fundraiser.resonance.fm and set up a regular donation. This week, I'm talking to writer and translator, Lara Alonso Corona, about cultural responses to the Spanish Civil War of 1936 to 39. Lara is a queer writer from the north of Spain. They studied film and TV in Madrid before starting to write in English and moving to London. Their fiction has appeared in online magazines like Literary Orphans, Burning House Press and the, the, the noir anthology Betty Fedora. They are the reviews editor at Minor Literatures and you can find them on Twitter at El Alonso Corona. Lara, welcome to Sweet 212.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> That's a pleasure. Uh... I would like to start the show by giving an overview of the Spanish Civil War and its background for listeners who may not be familiar with it. Like a number of its traumatic defeats, the Spanish Civil War retains a prominent place in the imaginary of left-wing historians, intellectuals and artists, 80 years after General Franco's victory over the Republican Army and the installation of a fascist dictatorship that lasted until his death in November 1975. The background to the war is complicated, with a number of long-term causes, but I'm going to attempt to summarise it here, going into more detail throughout the course of the show. During the 19th century, Spanish liberals made several attempts to reform the state, starting with the constitution of 1812 that attempted to limit the powers of the monarchy. There was a military uprising ...against the absolutist King Ferdinand VII in 1820 that established a liberal state that lasted just three years before the monarch regained total power. There were twelve coups and counter-coups between 1814 and 1874... ...the last of which restored the Bourbon monarchy in place of the short-lived First Spanish Republic. In 1898, Spain lost its final colonies, Cuba and the Philippines, in the war with the United States and divisions between conservative monarchists and the Republican coalition made up of those who inherited the 19th century liberal tradition and a growing socialist movement started to come to the fore. After the First World War, during which Spain was neutral, communism emerged as a major threat to the central government. In 1923, Miguel Primo de Rivera launched a successful coup and Spain was ruled by military dictatorship for the next eight years. In 1931, King Alfonso XIII gave into pressure for a republic and called elections for the 12th of April. Socialists and liberals won nearly all of the provincial capitals, and Alfonso fled the country after the dictatorship government resigned. And a revolutionary committee formed the provisional government, with its leader Niketo Alcalá Zamora becoming president and head of state. I should have practiced some of these names. Um... So the Republic was quite unstable, its government responded slowly to anti-clerical violence in 1931, and this meant that right-wingers thought it was opposed to the church, especially after its secular constitution was drafted towards the end of that year. Controversial reforms to the military turned fascists further against the Republic. Meanwhile, the civil guard and the army put down strikes and insurrections by the CNT confederation of anarcho-syndicalist trade unions which sparked fears of a communist or radical leftist takeover and forced a series of land and labour reforms designed to fend off revolution in the wake of the Great Depression. In 1933, right-wing parties won the elections, partly due to the abstention of anarchists and the enfranchisement of women who largely voted for centre-right parties. And they also gave amnesty to collaborators of an attempted right-wing coup in August 1932. In October 1934, a left-wing rebellion lasted just two weeks, and two government collapses at the end of that year brought about a confederation of autonomous right-wing groups who took power. A popular front alliance won the 1936 elections, forming a weak minority government, and in July 1936, General Franco, who had suppressed a miners' uprising in the Asturias in 1934, and more recently had been sacked as the military chief of staff, co-signed the pronunciamento of opposition to the republic. The military uprising began on the 17th of July 1936, but only succeeded in taking parts of the country. Franco gradually took control of the nationalist forces and was named head of state in October 1936, while socialists headed the republican government, first Francisco Largo Caballero and then Juan Negrín. Whilst the British, French and American governments refused any formal aid to the Republicans, leading them to turn to the Soviet Union for assistance, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy provided military support to the Francoists, which the 40,000 strong international brigades and the Republican army ultimately could not match, not least due to divisions about whether to protect the Republic or push for communist revolution, and the Stalinist persecution of the Trotskyist and anarchist parts of the Republican alliance. By November 1936, the Nationalists had advanced to the outskirts of Madrid. They laid siege to it, but were unable to get beyond the University City area. They captured the Basque northern provinces in September 1937, and then the Asturias. By October, they held the whole northern coast. In April 1938, the Nationalists drove eastward, reaching the Mediterranean and splitting the Republican two. In December, they moved upon Catalonia in the northeast, forcing the Republican armies north towards France. By February 1939, a quarter of a million Republican soldiers had fled to France, along with an equal number of civilians, and on the 5th of March, the Republican exile flew into exile in France. On the 7th of March, a war broke out in Madrid between communist and anti-communist factions, and by the end of that month, all the Republican armies had begun to disband and surrender, and nationalist forces entered Madrid on the 28th of March. On the international impact of the war, the historian Paul Preston wrote that Beyond its climatic impact on Spain itself, the war was very much the nodal point of the 1930s. The UK Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin and the French Popular Front leader Leon Blum, Hitler and Mussolini, Stalin and Trotsky all had substantial parts in the Spanish drama. The Rome-Berlin axis was clinched in Spain, at the same time as the inadequacies of appeasement were ruthlessly exposed. It was above all a Spanish war, or rather a series of Spanish wars, yet it was also the great international battleground between fascism and communism. And while Colonel von Richthofen practiced in the Basque Country the blitzkrieg techniques he was later put to perfect in Poland, agents of the NKVD re enacted the Moscow trials on the quasi Trotskyists of the PUM, which was one of the groups fighting for the Republic. The war was subsequently framed as a precursor of World War Two, in which both Spain and its neighboring right wing dictatorship in Portugal famously remained neutral. And soon after 1945, it gained the tacit support of the West as a victor over communism. Once again, after the war, it was left to artists and writers to provide the most powerful critiques of Franco's regime. So that's the background to the war uh, and the war itself. I want to go back now to talk a bit about Spanish uh, modernist artistic culture before the war. Um, And the two main strands at this point, of course, are art and literature. Um, Spanish modernist art was always quite internationalist. Uh, It had strong links with Paris in particular. Uh, Picasso and Miro both lived and worked in, uh, in Paris in the 1920s. Um, as did the um, Surrealist filmmaker Louis Bunuel, who we're going to come back to in the course of the show. Um, Of course, it was easier for visual artists, painters like Picasso and Jean Miro, to relate to international movements than it was for, for writers. But there are three important generations of writers who are kind of known... By the years in which they emerged. So there is the generation of 1898 who emerged at the time of the Spanish American War, the generation of 1914 and the generation of 1927. Um, So, Lara, I think we should just give some background on all three of those those generations and the um, the cultural context in which they were working the 1898 generation have been categorised as being quite sceptical about modernity, but quite formally experimental, um, being influenced by European Romantic literature and poetry, which was quite slow to enter Spain compared to other European countries, uh, and also interest in the loss of the um, the final Spanish colonies. Uh, I Not that many of these writers are particularly well known in English, um, the only one of them that I've read is the playwright and novelist Ramon del Valle in Clann, um, who I think is best known for his satirical portrait of the modern poets and writers in a play called Bohemian Lights. Um, but also he wrote a series of novels called the Sonata Novels, which are very popular uh, and was also known for being quite opposed to realism and shifting his allegiance from monarchism to anarchism. Um, so I wonder if you wanted to add any more on um, on clan and, and the generation of 1898.
1: Um, well, in the first place, uh, it was a really, you know, it was really discussed if there was a generation as such. A lot of the members denied that they were uh, a group. Uh, it started with um, three Basque uh, writers, uh, Pío Baroja, Azorín, and Ramón de Maeztu, and then from the non you get Unamuno and Ballen clan And even in music, you get uh, Isaac Albeniz, is supposed to be part of the 98th generation. And it's really, you know, it's the impulse to get Spain into modernism because uh, the loss of the colonies in Guam, uh, Cuba, um, the Philippines, kind of uh, destroyed the idea of um, an Spanish empire. So it was a moment when art became really pessimistic and as such enter modernity because Spain was a pretty backwards country um, until now, um, pretty insular in a way. They didn't uh, think themselves part of the rest of uh, Europe. And I think that's it. That's when it opened up a bit. Um, yeah. That's
0: can we talk a little more about um, the figure of uh, Miguel de Unamuno and his his role in this generation?
1: Um, yeah, Miguel de Unamuno um, was a, a writer, a novelist, um, especially a philosopher who had a really huge impact on the later generation, um, Ortega y Gasset, and then the 1970-27 um, generation. Uh, he was kind of... Uh, Predecessor of existentialism in his philosophy. It was really like his most well-known uh, book is about the the triic sense of life. So he was very interested in you know life as a tragedy. Um Should we talk about him in later? We hour? will. We will come okay. back
0: to Unamuno. Um, because i on our whistle-stop yeah. tour of Spanish <laughs> modernism before the war, uh, I want to move on to the generation of 1914, um, who were generally seen as being more European-facing, yeah. coming out of this insularity of the generation of 1898. Um, as with a lot of modern cultures in Spain, the terrain has changed quite considerably by the publication of Filippo Tommaso Marinetti's Futurist Manifesto in the Figaro newspaper in 1909. This was translated into Spanish shortly after by the writer and poet Ramon Gomez de la Sena, who also wrote his own proclamation of spanish futurism not long after in which he called for rebellion anti-universitarianism side real violence iconoclasm and the secularization of cemeteries um so you know quite eccentric uh contribution to a spanish futurism um which i don't know if it takes that much hold um certainly what's far more important is the magazine that the um the writer Jose Ortega y Gasset founds, and I wondered if you'd like to tell the listeners a bit more about that.
1: Um, yes, the writer and thinker uh, Ortega y Gasset, uh, which is the you know uh, most well-known figure of the generation of 1914, uh, founded um, a literary magazine called Revista de Occidente, which is kind of you know. In that time, in Europe, there were a lot of well-known uh, literary magazines. This is kind of an equivalent. Uh, he published uh, modern uh, modernist poets and the vanguards. Um, uh, mostly every poet and every writer in the next generation, in the 1927 generation, was published by Ortega y Gasset and he went on to publish through the Civil War. So a lot of the stuff that was critical of the moment uh, was published through him and then later through Alberti's uh, magazine.
0: Yeah, I mean, that kind of brings us on to the generation of 1927 and uh, the poet Rafael Alberti and uh, another figure, probably the most internationally well-known of all the people we've discussed so far, which is Federico García The poet and playwright. Uh, Ortega Regasset publishes a book in 1927 called The Dehumanisation of Art, uh, which is described in Derek Harris's book on the Spanish avant-garde as an attempt to bring the avant-garde under intellectual control. And I think in the generation of 27, um, one of the things you see is an increasing influence of political ideology and political commitment on the work. you know the generation of 27 was more politically active some of them worked for social and educational policies of the republic government after 1931 uh, and rafael alberti wrote in support of communist revolution so i wondered if you'd like to just spend a few minutes talking to talking to us about the um the works of garcia lorca and alberti in this context
1: um yeah uh what is important i think is how uh closely linked uh the work of the generation of uh, 1927 is with the Republic, and especially with um, the teachings of the Republic. There was an effort to bring art and science and culture to the population of Spain, which had one of the highest rates of illiteracy in Europe at the moment. It was mostly a rural population, so the Republic uh, kind of enrolled these artists to go to small towns and to bring uh, cinema, science, art, sometimes really difficult art. Um, uh, This mission uh, continued throughout the the war. Like there were uh, schools being built throughout the war. It didn't stop because of uh, the battles. Um, uh, Well, the most well-known member of the generation is Federico García Lorca. Then Alberti, there's the poet uh, Cernuda, Vicente Alessander, and, you know, many of them. It's a really big generation. They were mostly middle or upper-class people with independent means, so they could just dedicate themselves to art. That was important. They were admirers of uh, poets of, like, the the first golden generation of Spanish uh, writers, which was in the 17th century. They were admirers of uh, Luis Góngora, especially. Um, In fact, uh, one of the things that brought them together was the celebration of the death of Góngora 300 years ago, and that was in 27, so that's why they are called that, mostly. Uh, I don't know, do you want me to... Yeah,
0: the anniversary of Gongora's death in 1927 uh, as opposed to the anniversary of the painter Goya's death in 1928 exposed some interesting divisions between these different groups. Um, There's, uh, in the Derek Harris book on the Spanish avant-garde, I just mentioned there's a fascinating short chapter on the conflict that these... Two anniversaries being close to each other brought about in the Spanish avant-garde. Um, in particular, there's a fascinating section on Louis Bunuel's attempts to make a film about Goya, which eventually come to nothing, uh, largely because he his script is seen as reiterating all the kind of cliches about um, Goya and a kind of what Ramon del Valle-Inclan called a Goya as Spanish artist for tourists. Um, and at that point, Bunuel. Um, Goes and makes Uncien Andalu and the and Or with Salvador Dali instead. So there's this kind of surrealist turn in Spanish culture, but it's Spanish culture um, being made by Spanish artists uh, in Paris. Um, so Bunuel, I think, is the the last figure to emerge in, in that generation um, who, you know, more than the generations before them, become entwined not just with the Republic, but with the the war itself so I want to shift the conversation on to the um, response of like artists and writers to the to the conflict you know as we've said the war broke out in July 1936 and by this time there has been in the kind of five or six years following the impacts of the Great Depression and the Wall Street crash in Europe and the outbreak of the war there has been an effort by the European left to shift both sort of intellectual culture and political culture more widely towards socialism or communism uh, which has had very limited success it's achieved next to nothing in the united kingdom it's brought about the popular front government in france Um, obviously it's been spectacularly defeated in germany um, and hasn't really widely succeeded in the rest of the western european countries uh, obviously Italy already had a a fascist government and um this failure on the part of the radical left obviously plays into the um the international responses to the to the war um, I think something that changes the cultural landscape in Europe at this time is the fact that the Nazi government in Germany had been more explicitly opposed to modernism and intellectualism, per se, than the um, Italian fascist government, which had obviously been opposed to leftist intellectuals and modernist art, um, but, you know, had also formed an une- uneasy alliance with the Italian futurists. Um in a way that wasn't really possible in germany and um as so the outbreak of the war inspired a lot of like left-wing kind of writers artists intellectuals across europe uh, some german and italian emigres who were inspired by the chance to take on fascism in a way that they weren't able to do in their home countries and also because there was a sort of sense of poetry to the republican Side as as you've already discussed, a lot of the generation of twenty seven became explicitly involved with the republic's cultural policies and had a you know personal and emotional attachment to the republic. And there was also a deep sense of poetry in the people doing the fighting. I've picked out a um, beautiful and I think quite famous line from the Spanish anarchist leader uh, Buenaventura Durruti, the uh, anarcho syndicalist, the CNT. Uh, were quite important at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. And asked about the, um, the prospects for the Republican army, Durratti said, we are not afraid of ruins, we are going to inherit the earth. The bourgeoisie may blast and ruin their world before they leave the stage of history, but we carry a new world in our hearts. So at the same time as trying to defend the republic and consolidate the gains that were being made, there was also in the Republican side this quite diffuse and often quite idealistic demand for an even more radical change to Spanish society. Um, you know, The Spanish poets overwhelmingly supported the Republic. Uh, Raphael Alberti um, safeguarded paintings in the Prado Gallery. He organized a second International Congress of Writers where he went to Paris and Moscow to invite delegates, including uh, Stephen Spender, the British poet, um, the American poet Langston Hughes um, novelists Andre Malraux and Octavio Paz and um, Alberti also wrote poems for troops at the front um, uh, but of course much more famously than that was the um, the fate of uh, Federico García Lorca so I wondered if you'd like to um, talk about him and his work
1: um, Yeah, um, García Lorca uh, like many of the members of the generation of uh, 26, uh, came from a rich family in the south of um, Spain, in Andalucía, uh, from Granada. Um, But his family was quite left-wing and quite liberal. Um, His father even angered a lot of uh, landowners by paying his workers in the fields uh, like a decent salary, um, which is one of the reasons why I think Lorca got murdered, like, um, when the war uh, broke out, Lorca was supposed to be living for um, Buenos Aires, for Ar- Argentina, uh, to stage some of his plays, like, at this point he has he had written a lot of really successful plays already, most of his famous, like, uh, Blood Wedding, for example. Um, um, he was he had recently finished a uh, house of Bernardo Alba and But he didn't see that play stage um, But he delayed um, going abroad um, He was in Madrid when uh, the war broke out and he wanted to go home He wanted to go to Granada and all of his friends advised him Like no, you should stay in Madrid, especially Buñuel who was really Hit by, by his death, advised him to stay safe and stay mad, but he went to Granada. Uh, in Granada, uh, his uh, brother in law was the mayor of Granada, and when the rebels, when Franco's rebels uh, took the city, they killed Lorca's uh, brother in law, and the next day they arrested Lorca, and in the next day they murdered him and threw his body in a Uh, common grave. Like, to this day, uh, we don't know where Lorca's body is. Um, There's been a lot of controversy about why uh, Lorca was murdered, because uh, Franco's propaganda always suggested that it had been the Republican side, because they didn't want Lorca's uh, death on their conscience, because he was so well-known that it was... Really bad look for for the Franco regime, but uh, you know, later after Franco was uh, dead, uh, people could really examine what had happened, and it had been almost certainly the the rebels.
0: Yeah, I mean, Garcia Lorca's death attracted a lot of international attention, coming quite early on in the war during the um, summer or autumn of 1936. Another work of art that, of course, attracted a huge amount of international potential um, attention uh, is probably the most famous painting to come out of the war, which is Pablo Picasso's Guernica, uh, which is unveiled in 1937, not long after the um, the bombing of the the town. Um, Guernica was in the province of Biscay in the Basque Country. This was the first ever total destruction of a settlement by aerial bombardment. Um, hugely traumatic and became a really emblematic episode of the war uh partly because of the italian and german involvement in the in the bombing um the picasso painting is very famous i don't really want to spend too much time on it because i think most of our listeners will be aware of it it's a huge canvas painted in black and white with this real kind of cubist arrangement of the perspective used to illustrate the the carnage with kind of twisted bodies uh the heads of horses and bulls being shown as part of the devastation the work was taken on a a world tour designed to raise awareness of what was happening in spain the surrealist artist roland penrose brought it to london in 1938 i think the most famous moment in this tour was um when picasso was with the painting and he was joined by joseph goebbels goebbels said to picasso did you do this and picasso with his kind of trademark quit said no you did um So, Guernica became a very important part of the imaginary of the war. Um, Joan Miró's work, maybe slightly less so, uh, Miró showed a painting called The Reaper at the Spanish Pavilion at the Paris International Exhibition in 1937. Uh, Guernica was also shown there. Uh, This painting was lost after the pavilion was dismantled. Um, So, Miró's stamp and poster, A de la became more internationally famous, and indeed adorns the cover that I of the edition I have of George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, which of course very famously is Orwell's text about his time with the international brigades in Barcelona and elsewhere. The international cultural response to the war has again become an important part of the narrative. Um, after the British and French governments uh, refused to formally support the republican side, uh, lots of people signed up to the International Brigades and in America to the Abraham Lincoln Brigade that went to fight. Um, noted amongst these were um, WH Auden, um, who I didn't go to fight, but wrote about um, wrote a poem called Spain or Spain 1937, uh, which he later rejected from his collected editions regarding it as a dishonest poem that expressed political views that he never believed, but which he thought would be rhetorically effective. Uh, Orwell, um, of course, homage to Catalonia, um, was, I think, ruthlessly honest about the failings of the Republican side during the war, uh, and particularly the divisions between the Stalinists and the Trotskyists. Uh, the book was actually refused by Victor Gallant, the publisher at the Left Book Club, for criticising the left. Of course, it came out at a point where the... Um, I'm not sure if it actually came out after the Second World War had started, but certainly at a point where a conflict between um the Allied and the Axis powers was inevitable if not actually um if not actually begun. Um there was a lack of public interest in Orwell's book actually. Um it sold less than fifteen hundred copies by nineteen fifty after its publication. Um, Orwell had gone to Spain under the auspices of the, interna- of the Independent Labour Party, which was by then quite a small left-wing Labour group rather than the British Communist Party. Um, he wrote to his friend Cyril Colony that in the war he said, I have seen wonderful things and at last really believe in socialism, which I never did before. Uh, this was while he was recovering from being shot in the throat. Uh, but the the book that eventually came out was The core of it was Orwell's uh, disgust at the Stalinist persecution of the Trotskyists, uh, which was one of the reasons why the Republicans were eventually defeated. Um, The Republic's government declared the Trotskyist group, the POUM, illegal. Um, Their leader, uh, Andres Nin, was arrested and sent to a camp near Madrid uh, and tortured under the direction of the NKVD, the Soviet secret police, um, slandered as a fascist and... um, Died a really horrific death, um, and uh, and Orwell's text really records that. Um, I don't want to spend too long on the international responses because um, there are a lot of really interesting Spanish writers who've been overshadowed, I think, by the international um, international authors who who went to fight for the republic. But I would like to talk momentarily about um joris Ivens's film spanish earth which i think is one of the less well-known international uh contributions um This involved Ernest Hemingway, who narrated a version of the film, Uh, obviously Hemingway's novel For Whom the Bell Tolls is one of the most famous novels about the war. Um, So there's a version of this narrated by Hemingway. There's a version narrated by Orson Welles. Ivans himself was a Dutch communist documentary maker. Um, And maybe we could just spend a couple of moments talking about about that film and how it portrayed the conflict around a year into the the war.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it will be interesting to talk uh, about... um kind of Hemingway's position, like I'm sure all our listeners know about Hemingway and he's been talked to death uh, regarding the Spanish Civil War, but I think it's interesting that even among the international brigades, uh, there wasn't a consensus and Hemingway was really critical of Orwell for writing negative things while the Civil War was on. Hemingway thought that they should focus on giving hope so that international powers might support Spain and was really critical of that.
0: Yeah, um certainly Spanish Earth is more of a kind of propaganda film for the for the leftist cause um and that's in line with some of Ivan's other works which you know were kind of supportive of the Soviet Union in the early 30s or of kind of infrastructural projects that were of interest to the left as ways out of the Great Depression. Um we'll share the link to the Ivans film I think uh, after the show as we always do but maybe we could move the conversation on now to um, some of the Spanish writers um, particularly female Spanish writers who've been kind of overlooked in the history of the the Spanish Civil War
1: Um, Yes because uh, we don't really study female Spanish writers when uh, we study the uh, generation of uh, 1927 but they were a big part of the generation they have They had their own group. They were called las sin sombrero, which meant uh, women without hats. Um, There were some really good painters among them. Maruja Mayo was a member of that generation, which for me is one of the greatest Spanish painters, um, akin to someone like Frida Kahlo, for example. She was a really big surrealist who was really appreciated in in Paris, for example. Um, But there were other... um, figures, like Maria Zambrano, who was a philosopher really supported by Ortega y Gasset, and was part of that generation. Um, I wanted to talk especially about um, a writer called uh, Luisa Carnes, which is being recovered right now in Spain. She was a working class writer, which was really unusual for that generation, and she wrote books about the lives of working class women. Her most famous one is called Tea Rooms based on her experience as a waitress, and it was almost like a reportage. It was really journalistic, really realist. Um, she was a convinced socialist who supported the Republic during the war and had to be exiled, like most of, the, of that generation. And I think it's really important to recover that sort of fear.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you want to add anything else on um, on any of the other writers in, in that generation. We've got a few more minutes if you want to um, discuss any further, or we can move on to um, um, after the war.
1: Yeah, no, uh, yeah, we can move on after Okay,
0: so you're listening to Sweet 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, historical, and political context here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm talking to the writer and translator, Lara Alonso Corona, about the cultural responses to the Spanish Civil War of 1936 to 1939. So I want to move the conversation on now to um, the legacy of the war, how it was remembered in Spain, how that legacy was used, uh, and how artists, writers, filmmakers, etc., continues to respond to the war and its aftermath. Uh, As I said at the top of the show, um, immediately after the Second World War, during which, of course, Spain remained neutral, um, efforts were made to dissociate General Franco from the Axis powers who'd supported him in the Civil War and present him as a victor over international communism, really playing down his opposition to liberal democracy. Um, Paul Preston's concise history of the Spanish Civil War uh, has an introduction covering this, which is very good. Uh, Franco's support came from... The typical support of kind of far right authoritarian regimes, I would say, a mixture of the wealthy, of landowners, industrialists and bankers, um, some working class, but largely middle class conservatives and nationalists um, and Spanish Catholics who saw his regime as defenders of religion, law and order, and again as a war against communism. So the single party in Spain, the Movimento, had a huge bureaucracy and trade union movement. Uh, had a lot of military support obviously and a very large press network and it frequently deployed reminders of the war to rally loyalty whenever it seemed that the regime might be faltering. Um, Cultural unity was very important to Franco um, and he made considerable kind of cultural, political and military efforts to suppress Basque, Catalan and Galician languages, culture and nationalist movements. Um, At this point, kind of lots of writers and artists who were still alive, largely in exile, did continue to kind of fight the war. But a problem for the pro-Republicans was that they couldn't present a coherent narrative, uh, largely because they remained divided over the reasons for their defeat. The CIA funded the Congress for Cultural Freedom, and they gave money to writers to promote the idea that it was Stalin's suffocation of the Spanish Revolution, um, rather than willingness to fight for the Republic, that led to franco's victory largely ignoring the roles of hitler and mussolini let alone uh, the british premier at the end of the war neville chamberlain um in the defeat um i think it sort of continues to interest and inspire people because of its parallels with subsequent national liberation and socialist struggles in mexico in cuba nicaragua venezuela as well as um, a non-spanish-speaking country vietnam um but the history of the war was, you know, largely written, at least in cultural terms, by the defeated rather than the victors, which is quite rare, I think. Um, so I think this is a good moment to actually go into into some of those responses um, in detail, I think, starting with um, with some of the poetry. And I think, Lara, you wanted to talk about a um, a poet who's not particularly well known in the English speaking world, uh, Miguel Hernandez.
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, for me, Miguel Hernández is a symbol of the Spanish Civil War. He was younger than the generation, the generation of 27. Um, uh, He was a communist. He was uh, from a really poor family. He was actually a a goat herd. Um, His poetry was sometimes dismissed as very about nature. Um, He was kind of the John Clare of Spain. Um, uh, He actually fought in the front. He didn't just uh, write uh, in support of the Republic. He took arms and he kept writing poetry in the front. Um, After the war, he tried to uh, get to exile in France through Portugal, but he was detained. and He was sent to prison. Uh, condemned to death. Then that uh, was changed for 60 years in prison. Um, He died in in prison in 1941, uh, 42, sorry, when he was 31 years old, yes, 31 years old. Uh, A lot of his poetry was written in prison, and a lot of his poetry was written during the war. And I want to read a short, uh, a part of a poem called The Bounded Man. Uh, he, he wrote this on the front. I bleed for freedom. I fight, I survive. For freedom, I give my eyes and hands, like generous uncafted tree of flesh, to the sergeants. For freedom, I feel more hearts than grains of sand in me. My veins give a foam, and I enter the hospitals. I enter the bandages as if they were lilies. For freedom, I sever myself with bullets from those who dump her statue in the mud. And I sever myself from my feet, my arms, my house, from everything. Because where this empty eye socks don't, she will put two, two stones that see the future and make new arms and new legs grow from the prune fresh. The body's relics that I give up in its boon will bud again in autumnless flatterings of sap. Because I am like the crop tree, and I bat again, because I still have life. His poetry was uh, really optimistic, despite all the suffering. Um, lived on after he died, because it became a symbol of uh, anti-Franco resistance in the 60s and the 70s, because a lot of protest singers uh, made songs out of the lyric of his poetry.
0: Yeah, and Hernandez forms, I think, an interesting kind of parallel and contrast with the works of uh, Rafael Alberti, who in the 1950s published a volume that was translated by Carolyn Tipton later on uh, as Returnings, uh, Poems of Love and Distance. Now, Alberti, um, unlike Hernandez, was lucky enough to escape. Um, escaped to France at the end of the war, and uh, but only really by the skin of his teeth. Um, Alberti remained in Spain a lot longer than a lot of his comrades, and was in Madrid the day before Franco entered. When he managed to escape first to Algeria and then to France. Um, in France, of course, he did not escape fascism for long, and the um, the Nazi puppet regime under Marshal Patan uh, took away his citizenship um, not long after the the Nazi invasion of France. Um, so Alberti went to um, Buenos Aires, uh, where he stayed until the early 60s. And then with the worsening political situation in Argentina, he came to Italy in 1963, where, unlike in Spain, the fascist regime was, was long gone. Um, Alberti returned to Spain in 1977, uh, not long after the restoration of democracy and uh, he did an 80th birthday reading in a bullring in Madrid because he was so popular that they had to find a venue that large for him Um, I just want to read an extract from the final poem in the collection Um, it's split into three sections the first one kind of deals with uh, Alberti's youth um, and sort of the second one deals with his kind of loves um, and the third part deals with the kind of recent past but is addressed more to the spanish people uh than than the preceding two sections and the final poem in the uh the volume is indeed called return of the spanish people and i just want to um to read a section from this so alberti writes now come the invaders oh heart they're hurting you across mountains seas and plains oh heart they're killing you germans come and moors i'll sing heart if you'll let me Portuguese and Italians, a song, heart if you'll finish it, and over the fields of Spain, O oh heart, they cannot hurt you, kinsmen and brothers are dying, oh heart, they cannot kill you. Afterwards, shadows of night sorrow, the much-assisted triumph of the enemy and his mortal weapons, O oh my people, always one more lash of the invisible belt. And when you overflowed the cells, the killing pits of the prisons, the fields of forced labor, where you sighed from your mouth down to your soul, you still managed to send to me across the sea the strong, sustaining wind, which, even from so far, buoys up the wings of my unchanging song. So you get a sense of Alberti retaining a sense of, if not optimism, then a sense that, you know, one day this regime would fall and that things would... um, would change and would would improve. Um, I want to move on to um, some of the films that form the legacy of the um, the Spanish Civil War and the Franco regime now um, and in particular I want to spend a few minutes focusing on uh, Fernando Arabal who was part of the panic movement that incorporated a, a few French uh, writers and artists um, an Argentinian queer dramatist called Copi um, who also worked in France and Al- uh, Arabal who who worked in France as well um, Arabal's father um, was imprisoned um, by the Francoists uh, but escaped from the prison camp in 1941 but disappeared forever um, so Arabal never really, really knew his father um, but he made, Arabal was a Playwright as well as a filmmaker, um, wrote a play about Guernica, uh, but also made two two films dealing with the legacy. The first of which was uh, Viva la Morte in 1971. Um, and this shows a child kind of imagining his father's death at the hands of fascists after the child's mother has turned his communist father into the authorities. Um, you know, it's an astra- extraordinarily violent film, it's really, really brutal. Um, and it includes kind of drawings in the opening sequence by Roland Topor, the artist and novelist and filmmaker. Um, but this film was very much based on uh, Arabelle's childhood uh, and is very traumatic. Um, the second film, which I watched recently, was, I think, the first film about the Spanish Civil War to be made in Spain um, in the mid 70s called The Guernica Tree. Uh, this is set actually in a village called Villa Ramiro. Um, and it starts off with a street festival with artists kind of playing pranks on government officials uh, and then this um, this woman arrives who tries to defend herself against the fascist thugs who try to sexually assault her and uh, she's actually a survivor of the Guanica massacre who tries to inspire rebels and she obviously uh, recalls uh, La Pasionara uh, Dolores Iber- Iberuri, um, who who was a very famous and popular figure amongst the Spanish left during the war So that's kind of Arabelle's work. I wondered if you wanted to maybe talk about how some other filmmakers, um, including Buñuel, who um, lived and worked in exile in Mexico and France for a long time after the war, how they responded to the legacy.
1: Buñuel, when uh, he went to live in Paris during the uh, civil war, was in charge of uh, propaganda for the Republic. Um, uh, made a really uh, important documentary uh, called Spain uh, 1936 uh, which uh, was so um, he, it has such an impact that actually the Franco propaganda tried to copy exactly their uh, documentaries um, uh, The thing about cinema um, and the Civil War is that a lot of uh, filmmakers had gotten their start in the Republic. Some of them went on to the Francoist side. Some of them remained apolitical almost, like José Valdero Omar, who went on to be one of the most important experimental uh, filmmakers in Spain. But at the end of the day, Buñuel is the household name And He worked with the Republic until the end of the war
0: Yeah um, You know the astonishing kind of satirical power of Bunuel's films continued like very near to the end of his career. I mean even a a film like the Phantom of Liberty made in France in the uh, mid 70s I think 74 that came out um, drew on some of the imagery of the um, of the Spanish Civil War and I think The particular brand of hatred in the uh discrete charm of the bourgeoisie from 1972 i think comes not just from a kind of familiar leftist loathing of the uh the bourgeoisie and their lifestyles and habits generally but i think in particular the um the role of the bourgeoisie in supporting and maintaining the the franco regime is kind of lurking in the background of um of that film um i mean the um the civil war uh continued to inspire filmmakers from other countries as well um and uh there are three three films by outsiders that i'd like to briefly touch on so there's um ken loach's land and freedom uh blockade uh directed by william Dieterle, and uh hispania by the um the soviet filmmaker uh sphere shubb who is maybe best known for her film about the fall of the Romanov dynasty. So I wonder if you'd like to maybe uh, expand on how those th- films um, dealt with the legacy.
1: Um, yeah, Blockade, uh, I think is a really interesting case uh, from 1938, which was when the war was still going on. And it was an dip- independent production in Hollywood uh, with Henry Fonda as protagonist. Uh, it was an—it's an, an even film. It's very propagandistic, but also very Hollywood sentimental. But it was also really antagonistic in the sense that at the end of the of the film, uh, the protagonist calls out to the democratic regions of the world: "Why are you not doing anything?" So it was an attempt by Hollywood to kind of pressure other countries and their own government. Um, uh, most people who were involved in that film later on went to be blacklisted by the McCarthy witch hunt. And fi- that film became proof of their communism because they were pro-Spanish Republic. Mm. Do you want to talk about Lanham Freedom? I, I
0: think it might be nice to momentarily touch on, uh, on Ken Loach, yeah, I think he's- Yeah, uh,
1: uh, Lanham Freedom is basically film yours all well because it deals mostly with the tensions between uh, communists and socialists and anarchists uh, in the war. And you see more of that than, like, if you watch that film, you almost don't know that the Francoists existed because it's mostly Republicans giving other Republicans. So in that sense, it's really critical of the communists in in Spain.
0: Yeah, and... um... Obviously, Esafir Shubb was, was working from a Soviet perspective, so I wondered if you'd like to maybe talk about the, the Shubb film briefly.
1: It's a compilation film, which is uh, what she was known for. She had made, as you said, Fall of the Roman Dynasty, which was a really important film. She influenced uh, influenced people like uh, Zwicka um Yeah, uh, she took like, a lot of um, newsreel of the uh, period, uh, Republican newsreel, and whatever they could get uh, their hands on, um, made, you know, this kind of documentary explanation of what was going on from a Soviet perspective.
0: Yeah, um, I also want to just mention in passing the films that were made of um, André Malraux's L'Espoir. In fact, Malraux made that film himself, uh, Days of Hope. 1946 and in the 40s also there was a, a hollywood film of uh, Hemingway's for whom the bell tolls um and both of these films contributed to the um memory the legacy of the spanish civil war as something uh, as a kind of precursor of the second world war and a delineation of the sides that would fight in in the the kind of wider conflict um i think there are just a couple of more recent films that we should very briefly touch on which are um, uh, Guillermo del Toro's films The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth and uh, a recent uh, Alejandro Amenabar film uh, dealing with um, Miguel de Um Unamuno coming back to to his work from earlier on so I wonder if you'd like to just talk a little bit about those those three films and how they're dealing with the legacy of the war
1: um, yes, uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, films, The Devil's Backbone um uh, Pan's Labyrinth, which is obviously more famous than The Devil's Backbone, um, examine the Spanish Civil War from a genre point of view. So The Devil's Backbone is very much a horror movie, very classical horror movie, and Pan's Labyrinth is a fantasy movie, so he uses the tropes of horror and fantasy to examine Uh, all the fear and all the suffering of the uh, Spanish Civil War. But it's a bit of an outsider perspective because he's Mexican so at times it's a bit, it feels a bit too exploitative. Like there's a lot of really graphic scenes that are a bit too much. Perhaps um, for a film, which is yet to be uh, released, it's released this year, it's called Mientras Dure La Guerra. Between as long as the war goes on. Uh, And it's about um, an important moment in the Spanish Civil War, uh, with uh, Miguel de Unamuno confronting uh, José Millán Astray, which was the founder of the Spanish Legion, a really right-wing organization. And Unamuno initially supported Franco, but then he became very bitter about that. And when José Millán Astray made a, a speech in Salamanca uh, after they'd taken over the the city which was a really anti-intellectual speech um celebrating war and celebrating death and you know uh, death to the intellectuals so unamuno went up and made another speech against the fascist um, that's a really famous uh, confrontation that some people think it was a bit fabricated the speech but uh, Alejandro Menabar the director of films like Open Your Eyes or The Inside* um, uh, shot a film last year and actually got threats from the Spanish Legion because uh, still in Spain, there's not a very critical...
0: Yeah, uh, we've got five minutes left here on Suite 212, so I just want to close today's show on the cultural legacy of the Spanish Civil War by talking about the Pact of Forgetting um, that was kind of tacitly agreed upon uh, shortly after the uh, restoration of Spanish democracy in the late 70s and it was this sort of tacit agreement to renounce any settling of scores after Franco's death Um, and this this being despite an attempted military coup in 1971 that tried and failed to restore the right-wing dictatorship. um, Paul Preston records that the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the war um, in 1986 was quite muted. There was one TV series, uh, a handful of discrete academic conferences, um, one of which Valencia, capital of the Republic, um, had a poster designed by Raphael Alberti, which was based on the famous Republican flag, the red, purple and yellow Uh, Flag, which was unofficially but effectively banned. Um, More recently, there have been arguments over Franco's grave. Franco is buried in the Valley of the Fallen, which was built 40 miles outside Madrid in the 40s and 50s, largely by Republican prisoners. And this has a huge mausoleum of both Franco and General Primo de Rivera of the 1920s military dictatorship um, in the middle of it, uh, at the same time as there are um, 114,000 bodies and unmarked graves across Spain, uh, including Garcia Lorca, as we mentioned earlier. Um, in a recent uh, Dan Hancock's piece for Vice, um, Hancock's wrote that the memorialization of Franco doesn't stop with the Valley of the Fallen either. In today's Spain, he's freely commemorated in a way Hitler and Mussolini never could be in Italy or Germany. There is a Francisco Franco Foundation with charitable status, which has received sizable government grants and actively defended the dictator's legacy. On the 20th of November every year, the anniversary of Franco's death, the mausoleum becomes a site of fascist pilgrimage. Supporters gather to honour his memory, largely unhindered by law enforcement, SIG heiling, waving fascist flags, singing the anthem of the phalange, al Sol. Um, So, Hancock says that the left-leaning government in Spain last summer had announced plans to finally move the body and rebury it, and to turn the Valley of the Fallen into a non-partisan site of national mourning and and remembrance, uh, which provokes outrage when it was announced in June 2018. Uh, The Prime Minister at the time, uh, Pedro Sanchez, said that the wounds have been open for many years, too many, and the time has come to close them. Our democracy will have symbols that unite citizens. Um, Lara, I wonder if you had anything quickly to add we've only got a couple of minutes but um,
1: Yeah, just to say that uh, the way we've been talk, uh, taught the civil war in Spain is that they were two equal sides, they both did bad things nobody's to blame and that's just a fabrication of history
0: Yes, well um, I think the in in that case the arguments over the uh, memorialization historicization cultural representation of the Spanish Civil War will uh, will continue for some time to come this history is still very much live um you know Franco's death is is only just over 40 years ago so it's only really two generations ago um i think there'll be a lot more to say on this topic in future but um we're going to have to leave the discussion for there today um So thank you to Lara Alonso Corona for joining me in the Resonance studio. Um, We'll be back next Monday, same time, same place, when Tom Overton will be talking to Jeff Nuttall about uh, bomb culture. So uh, please join us then at 2pm. Thanks for listening. Take care. Goodbye. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM.
1: If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.